0: We didn't expect ever that both of us would come back. We thought one of us would probably die. So we put these little parcel of things for our kids and wrote a letter to them in case one of us didn't come back. Life. Faith. Spirituality.
1: More Than This with Sheridan Boise. Hello and welcome to the More Than This podcast. It has been a while since I've put out a full episode, but now is a pretty good reason to do so. My name is Sheridan Boise. I am the author of a number of books, including the forthcoming, The Making of Us, who we can become when life doesn't go as planned. Also, Resurrection Year, Resilient and a few others. Today, you're going to listen to an interview that I did back in 2007 with something of a hero of the faith. Particularly if you're Australian, you will know this name, but also he's well known in the UK and the US and elsewhere. His name is John Smith. legendary Christian minister, evangelist, commentator, activist, and founder of the God Squad Motorcycle Club, who has sadly died after a 19-year battle with cancer. An amazing, amazing man, he addressed the United Nations. He nearly faced execution in the Philippines. He founded numerous charities like Concern Australia. He spent much of his life with outlaw bikers and marginalized people. But if you go and hear his story, if you check out his early years, you realize, man, this this guy was never destined to be a radical. He was very buttoned up, very conservative in his youth, as you're about to hear. So what happened? It was a special interview for me because I got to speak to a true hero of the faith. But you know what? I will take away another conversation with John in my own memories as being even more special. When I had just released Resurrection Year, John called me on the phone one day. Uh, He had just read it and he called to to talk about it. He had been moved by the book and I was, of course, incredibly moved that he would call me. I remember he was calling from his home in Melbourne. Uh, I was in the north of England somewhere, I think, speaking at a conference. He called me on my mobile so you can imagine the cost of the call. But he ended up writing this incredibly moving endorsement for the book. It's a whole page, uh, which is also on today's show notes. But there was a note of sadness in his voice as we spoke, because as he would write in that endorsement of the book, you know, he had once preached to thousands of people at a time. He had spoken at all the big conferences. He had been interviewed on the huge, big TV programs in Australia and the UK and elsewhere, some clips of which you will find on the show notes to today's post. And yet... By the time we were talking, he also was wrestling with disappointment and broken dreams. He had gone through a destructive church split. Uh, He had been dismissed by God Squad at one stage. And then, of course, was the invasion of cancer into his life. So he had some sadness there. And yet, in the midst of these difficulties, John Smith was a man of such rugged hope, such uncompromising faith, He was a radical person because of his radical commitment to and love for Jesus of Nazareth. And I can't help think to myself that as I personally think so much these days about the forces that shape us, about what makes for a good life, about who we can become when things don't go as planned, I can't think of a better witness for all of this than John Smith, who in faithfulness, who in good times, who in difficult times was radically obedient. So take a listen to this interview Take some notes, and take note of this example of radical faith. Just to touch on a few of those aspects of your life, you were actually a fairly conservative lad in your early preaching days, weren't you?
0: Well, I was off the wall, mate. As a matter of fact, I got a phone call yesterday, you wouldn't believe this, but from a group called the Cross Country Singers, and they were country-western singers singing songs like... um, On the wings of a snow white dove all those kind of songs Mm. and i went to go and preach as a young preacher of all places in mount isaac and these i was so conservative then that the fact they played just gentle country music to me sounded worldly i mean you wouldn't believe it i mean I, i grew up in a situation where cards pool tables motorcycles dancing were all evil. They were mm. part of an ill-spent youth. And uh, so that was my background. And, and at one stage, I actually went out preaching as a young preacher. was so the uh, pro-the American-Vietnam War thing that I actually said that I believed they should drop limited atomic bombs on North Vietnam and turn it into a landing field for B-52 bombers so that they could uh, resist the creeping peril of yellow communism in Southeast Asia. That's how far (laughs) to the right I was. I held a, a South African white view of race, believed that the blacks were cursed of God to be the subservient race to the whites, all that stuff. You know, it was a, an incredible thing that within 10 years I was an activist about uh, equality and all sorts of things without throwing in the Christian faith. Coming uh, out of such a conservative background, uh, I went through a dramatic change because I saw the kids in high school I was trying to deal with at the same time as they were in the local church group. Uh, I was answering all the questions they weren't asking. And of course, it was that revolutionary period, you know, at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, I was a late starter. In a sense, I discovered the Beatles the year they split. Uh, but I really got into it after that. And my wife and I felt that we were called to go to Sunbury Pop Festival, which cost me me job. As a nice young preacher, I got sacked. Is that right? So they thought there was going to be nudity and dope smoking and that that wasn't a suitable place for a young preacher to be. And I said to them, well, I think it's the very place a young preacher ought to be, uh, both to learn what's going on in the world and also to be able to engage in conversation about it and have a compassion for a generation that really felt very lost and uncertain about the past and the future. So we trotted off to Sunbury, which of course was bigger for Australia than Woodstock was for America in terms of percentage of population. And uh, one of the things I wrote in my autobiography that was interesting given Billy Thorpe's death in the last week uh, was a section about my reaction to him singing uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And, like, he'd got the whole crowd shouting obscenities, uh, which in those days was unusual. I mean, these days you can hardly see a movie where the magic words aren't found. But Mm. in those days it was pretty over the top you know it was almost like a bunch of young people saying we're free of our parents and the adults and we'll just go whoopee for the weekend and he was screaming obscenities and then all of a sudden in the midst of angry high volume which was typical of billy and his brilliant brilliant musical uh, ability he suddenly went into this uh, almost mystical singing of somewhere over the rainbow And, like, there was people all around with tears running down their faces, and it was like a psychic wave of longing went across that huge crowd with a generation that was longing to find something better. And, of course, for a little while, we really believed it.
1: So you go off to Sunbury and you have this experience uh, watching Billy Thorpe play and sing. You lose your job over it. What happens then? Because the thing that most people know you for is the uh, God Squad Motorcycle yeah. Group. The link between Sunbury and God Squad, connect that to us. For
0: oh, us. Very close. Uh, it was like a, uh, it was just a collision course almost. I mean, when we were cut off, I remember we came home, we found out we had 24 hours notice and three months pay. And first off, I thought they would given me a month's warning, and then the next day I came into the office feeling a bit miserable, and they said, look, you don't have to take your stuff today. You can do it when, you know, we understand it's a bit of a shock. And I said, do you mean I'm sacked as of today? And they said, yes. And so we went out with no visible means of support. I didn't have a church support, didn't have anything, and and I came home and we just stood around the sink and cried. And we just prayed and we said, what are we going to do about this? I mean, you know, some people, they don't understand the religious thing, you're going to think the next bit is is kooky. But, but it's true. I mean, it's what happened in, my, in our lives. We sat down. I'd started a Jesus paper that grew to about 35,000 copies circulation each month. It was called Truth. And uh, then it became Truth and Liberation. And that particular 12-page or... 16 page tabloid newspaper it was a street paper and we just started putting that out and we we're getting phone calls and letters from young people that were sick of the system both in the church and out of the church and at that point we stood around the sink and we said well we've got no money how are we going to pay our mortgage How are we going to survive we've got three little children Ra ra ra." and uh the mail came and there was a check from a uni student in south australia who didn't know I'd been given the boot and who had no idea, nobody had any idea except us, how much it was costing us to publish his paper. And Glenna just said to me, you know, you need to um, you need to uh, just go ahead and trust God. And I said, oh, you know, <laughs> where are we going to get the money from? Mm-hmm. She said, just send it off to the printers and we'll trust. And when I got back, she was all smiles and she said, I've been scared to open this envelope because I don't know how much money's so in it. It might be just $1 bills. And there was the check and this second uh, bunch of notes in an envelope that was precisely the amount it cost to republish the next edition of the magazine. <laughs> and I mean, these people didn't know. And we didn't even know what the cost was going to be, but it was exact. and it's those kind of things in your life I know there'll be people who are cynical about Christians and I think some Christians carry on but there are some times when these kind of events happen where there's no explanation that makes Mm. any sense Mm. except that somehow God intervened and did something in the real world and that's the way we started and from then on we said well If we're going to be like Jesus, he was a friend of publicans and sinners and other outcasts. Is one of the reasons he probably got crucified, was he hung out with the wrong crowd. So what do we do? So I started to hang out around uh, pool rooms and places like that. And a a number of events brought me across some Christian bikers that uh, wanted to do something. At that point, I felt God said to do something with the bikers. And I, I saw some bikers on the side of the road. And they were just drinking their beer and fixing up their bikes. And, and I said, Dear God, please do something for these guys. And God said to me, as best I understand it, in my head, I got the message that said, Why don't you answer your own prayers? And then around the same time, I met a, a guy uh, who had been England's evil Knievel. Uh, he'd been the top stunt rider, and he'd become a Christian. And he said, Smithy, you need to get on a motorcycle. You've got the year of young people. Get out there on a motorcycle and that'll help your cause." His name was Eddie Pye. So there was a whole bunch of events like that that all came together and seemed to be saying, go do it. And so we did. And, of course, God Squad's been through its trouble because uh, when you're dealing with bikers, they tend to be radically individualistic. Uh, They tend to be a bit ego-driven, it a struggle sometimes to make sure that people don't play an ear game with it. But now we're in uh, uh, Norway, Finland, the Ukraine, Holland, Germany, Ireland, England, uh, Wales, all over Australia. One of our guys in Holland was an outlaw, but he was a debt collector for the Mafia in Italy. Hmm. And uh, his family broke up because his wife was terrified of what was going on. And uh, he eventually was led to the Lord by some Christian bikers. And today he's back with his wife and uh, riding with our guy.
1: Amazing stories.
0: Transformed bloke. It's really amazing where it's gone from those days.
1: Yeah. John, all of these years of riding with the bikers, what one thing has riding with all of those bikers taught you? One thing.
0: You know, I guess we, we are kind of a service organisation to our brothers in that scene. And I'd want to hasten to say that one size does not fit all. Every now and again, and I noticed this week in the newspapers has been another big thing about, uh, you know, crime and the, the biker scene. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen, but there are some clubs that are just like Rebel Without a Cause, the old James Dean thing, uh, you know, in the old movie, and they're just blokes that say the system's stuffed. We uh, don't want anything to do with it, and uh, we just want to be blokes on our bikes. There are others where there may be individual members playing with drugs, but the club overall wouldn't do that kind of stuff. And then you've got some that are pretty hardcore, where where the clubs themselves are a bit involved in in the uh, international drug scene and so on. So just just because guys look wild, you cannot judge a book by its cover. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned. And that's a very Bible thing, because both in the Old Testament, uh, in Moses' writings, and also in the writings writings about Jesus and the Gospels, it says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Mm. And working in this scene has led me to meet some of the most beautiful people that look the wildest people you could ever see. Some of the guys that look as though they're, you know, the most outlaw, love their kids, and they love their wives, and, and they're just... The most true blue mates, in fact, I'd have to say to you honestly, it's a terrible thing to say, but I've seen outlaws who are now 60-odd, 65 years of age at funerals of their mates who frankly show a broken-heartedness and a connectedness to their mates that I rarely see, even in church.
1: If you were to review those those years that you've had, I mean, you know, you're turning 65 this year, that's got to be reason enough to have a, a midlife re-evaluation mm-hmm. <laughs> or refocus. What would you suggest has been the most significant moment for you? Maybe a, a moment that has proved to be the unexpected turning point you never would have seen at the time.
0: Well, one of them comes before I started this wild path, and that was um, I, I had some friends who were working with street kids in the inner city of Melbourne many years ago in the 60s. And um, I went to see what they were doing, and at that time I was at Bible college, and I was kind of dressed in a suit with a tie and everything else. I had no idea of that world. And uh, these guys introduced me to some of these kids that were gang kids, and, and one of them looked at me and he said... Uh, He said, if you answer one question, I might talk to you. And I was, you know, a Bible student, and I really felt I'd be able to give this yet on the street a good answer. (laughs) And I ended up humbled very much by it, because he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, uh, he said, what is God like? And without thinking what that kid's background was, I said, God is like a father, son. And his eyes blazed with hate, and he said, if he's anything like my so-and-so you know you could guess the words Mm. old man then you can shove him up your jumper and then he stormed off into the night and i said to the youth worker, i felt a little bit offended i thought i'm trying to be nice to this kid and he's walked away from me and the youth worker said what did you say to him i said i just told him god was like a father he said well that was real smart smithy do you know anything about his father? I said, No. Of course I don't. He said, Well, his father is a sexual abuser of of his girls and his family. He's a and a, a drunkard. He he beats up this kid, and this kid is the only thing standing between this man and the, and the death almost of his mother and his sisters. And you told him, God's like that. Wow. And I think that taught me in that moment that sometimes we come with our religious data and we do the tip truck thing and dump our theology on people. And so that was one of the most important moments. I think the second one, uh, you know, I get nervous about this I don't want to sound like I'm some brave guy because actually I'm a scaredy cat underneath. Years ago, my wife and I were in uh, the Philippines and we, um, we received a call from two different Filipino groups. One of them was a Catholic group. We were at a World Congress on Evangelism and this message came through saying if some of the delegates from this conference will come to Negros you might be able to save a thousand people's lives because we've just been warned over the radio that that these death squad guys are coming in to wipe out uh, nearly 800 refugees that have fled from the mountains when the government went in and and dropped napalm all over the the farms to get rid of a a handful of communists Mm. And uh, they were about to come into this seminary, this Catholic seminary, wipe everyone out. And my wife, she said to me about five o'clock in the morning, John, God has told me to go to this place and stand between these people and death. And she was actually more brave than me because where she was going looked very, very, very dangerous. I'd got another telegram that's from Mindanao, which of course is the wild island. So many people have been kidnapped and killed there. And this one was because a mad mayor in a city called Kitapawan, where their motto was killer communist for Jesus, Mm. had gone in and bulldozed down the homes of peasant people in a search for Japanese gold they assumed was left there in the last world war. And uh, we got invited by the people there to go and monitor this human rights violation. And I felt God would have me go there. So we wrapped up some little parcels for our children back in Australia who were teenagers then. And we wrapped them up and we hugged each other and cried. And um, we didn't expect ever that both of us would come back. We thought one of us would probably die. So we put these little parcels of things for our kids and wrote a letter to them in case one of us didn't come back and then we set off Glenna to Negros and me to Mindanao and when I arrived there they had the bulldozers bulldozing down the homes and there was women and children running everywhere in terror with these guys with M16 guns all over the place and my co-pastor and I just went ballistic and we just jumped on one of the tractors the guys jumped off and we ripped all the wires out and stopped it and then we got arrested and carted off to prison, and they uh told us we'd be executed the next day and at night time they interrogated us every every hour or so, and they would say uh, they'd quote Bible verses and say, "Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Tell us the truth who brought you in here, and we'll set you free oh, yeah. and and uh, that was a big test because you lay there at night, I was lying on my back, you know there was about fifty people jammed into a thing the size of a small lounge room. Our only toilet facilities was a can with part of the side cut out hanging from a string. So we were head to toe on the floor like a carpet to sleep at night. And I'm lying there looking at these little white gecko lizards running across the roof and I'm thinking, I think I like you more than human beings. (laughs) It's about how I felt. But that night I had to decide whether what I'd always preached whether I really meant it, because, you know, the temptation came, tell them a few names of the civil rights workers that brought you in, they're not going to know you cheated on them, and you, you might get free. And my mate and I had to lie down that night and decide whether we really believed what we thought we believed, whether we really did believe there was a life to come, whether we really did believe if we died there was a better life on the other side, or whether we believed it was better to die with dignity and commitment to truth. Than it was to save your life and live with what you knew had been cowardice. So we uh, we stuck to it, and uh, it looked like we we're going to be executed. The, some members of the UN came in and tried to talk to the mayor, and they came and visited us and said, "Look, there's nothing we can do. It looks like you're gone." And I must admit, a certain incredible peace, something I've. You know, life gets a bit duller if you've been through something like that. Yeah, but, it does. but I, you know, it changed something in me. I, you know, when I watch Christians conforming to the stock exchange, uh, preaching prosperity doctrine and stuff, I feel sick now because I know what it is to face this and to say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, I'd rather have him than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And, I mean, if you're not a Christian and you hear this, you'll think I'm completely crazy, but it's something, you see it in Mother Teresa, you see it in much greater people than Glenna and I, but it's just something that is so much bigger, so much more fantastically human, something so precious and, and great. Uh, that goes beyond all this materialistic stuff. Oh, yeah. Dear old Glenna, she was on Negros and they had a, a conference with all these television cameras and everything because they actually stopped the massacre there and the uh, death squads moved out of town and, and this beautiful bunch, mostly women and children, were saved through the action of Glenna and uh, and another woman from New York, and an Australian uh, uniting church minister, the three of them had gone in to take the risk. They had this interview, and one of the journalists said, do you know that your husband's on, on the island of Mindanao and that he's awaiting execution? And she said, praise the Lord. And they looked at her like she was a complete nut. And <laughs> then she said, oh, I don't mean I'm glad that he's in danger. I just feel so good that he stood by what he believes. Wow. And, and he's always preached this stuff to everybody, and now he's living, he at- living it. Wow.
1: And how did you get freed then?
0: Well, we got free really because of the international press. They learned how the soldiers did their regular march. So they would flit off into the shadows and then come out again when the soldiers were going around the other side. And they pieced the story together. So it was intriguing. Mm-hmm. And we got out and left the next day. So at that point we um, waited till we had some escorts. And then we fled the four and a half hours of what ended over to Davo. And even when we went there and thought we were safe and went to a restaurant, our uh, friends from the town recognised some of the mayor's uh, thugs had come into the restaurant. So we then had to escape out of four doors and run off to a Catholic monastery and get picked up. Uh, and John! To the airport. so <laughs> It's a bit like being in a movie.
1: <laughs> Isn't it? Absolutely amazing stories. And yeah. and like I said, you know, your wife was so overjoyed that you were, you know, living what you were preaching. Yeah. And really that comes back to the person of Jesus. And I'd love to end on this one. You know, what characteristic of Jesus most captivates you these days?
0: Uh, his unconditional and indiscriminative love. I mean, you know, that's... that's uh... That's the most powerful thing. And of course, in the New Testament, you know, sometimes Christians talk as though being right with your theology is what matters most. But St. Paul said, faith, hope, and love, they're the three things you need. You can, you, I know so many people who have committed suicide because I've been interested in people that are depressed and suffering suicide tendencies. I know so many people who were, who were loved by their parents or by their friends, but they didn't feel any hope. And so they still took their lives. So it's not only love we need, we need a faith to live by. We need something that makes solid sense of life with all its pain and struggles. We need a a hope in something bigger than ourselves. And we need above all else love, because Paul said, you need those three, but the greatest of these is love. And I think the thing, you know, you know, when I was a little kid, we used to sing a song that said, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And I I, I still feel like crying when I hear that little song because, you know, the love of human beings isn't big enough. I'm one of those guys. I saw people that came to Jesus at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s because they were suicidal over the splitting up of the Beatles who said, all you need is love. And a lot of the hippies that really loved the Beatles, they were devastated when these guys broke up saying nasty things about each other. They'd been the one that said, love, love love, love, all you need is love and it hadn't worked out. But I find something enduring and robust and different about the divine love that comes from Jesus. I can't explain it, but it is the greatest of all loves and it transforms your life and your attitude towards others and even towards things.